everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice podcast for healthcare professionals, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant e-mental health tools and programs that can assist practitioners in providing care. I'm Phoebe Holdens-Humira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast was recorded and produced on the lands of the Darug people, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, their elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 55 titled More Than Just Self-Care, Health Practitioner Wellbeing. We had a fantastic group of panellists. Dr. Peter Baldwin is a practicing psychologist and the head of clinical research at the Black Dog Institute. Kay Dunkley is a pharmacist and the executive officer of the Pharmacist Support Service. Dr. Hilton Coppy is a writer, podcaster and GP who facilitates reflective writing workshops for health professionals. In this podcast, we took a deep dive into what burnout and well-being looks like for us all two and a half years into the pandemic. We discussed the differences between burnout and mental illness and some practical skills and frameworks that we can use to support our well-being. Um, But what exactly is burnout? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's there's a few different definitions of it. Um, I think the thing to really remember is that it's really related to occupational stress and not being able to escape occupational stress. Um, and of course, occupations aren't just the things that we do for money. They're also the things that we do in our spare time to look after our friends and family and our children and all of those extra roles that we do that take up our time um, where we can experience unrelenting stress. Um, and also, it's not a diagnosis. A lot of people feel uh, or, you know, sort of come to us and say, do I have burnout? But we can't really have Burnout, it's really more an idea that we use to try and describe a sort of stress state that people are in. And so there's some key factors there. The biggest one that we always, that we often hear in the telehealth clinic of Black Dog is both physical and emotional exhaustion. Some people are still very much on their feet, but they don't feel like they've got anything left to give emotionally. Um, That lack of a personal accomplishment, just not feeling like you're getting anywhere, doing anything useful or meaningful or really chipping away at anything. Um, also, this idea of depersonalization. So that's really about feeling like you're not the person who you used to be or the person who you really want to be, feeling like you've sort of maybe woken up in someone else's body or watching someone else's life happen and it's not something you feel connected to. It's also important to remember so that depression and burnout have lots of overlap as well. Mm. So you can have problems with sleep, problems with appetite, problems feeling lethargic, all of those sorts of things when you're experiencing um, you know, the symptoms of burnout, but doesn't necessarily mean you're at any greater risk for depression. Mm-mm-mm. Thank you. And I, I know that um, I, I think at least in my cohort, there's a sense that burnout is a less stigmatising term um, than depression. And so people sort of feel quite comfortable saying that perhaps they're burning out so they're in that process of experience some, experiencing some burnout symptoms. Um and uh, but it, it's a bit risky sometimes because it might mean that we un- overlook some other more si- perhaps more serious diagnoses as well. So you've t- talked to us about the definition of burnout, but what's been happening um, in Australia with burnout over the last two years? Um, well, I guess good things for the burnout industry. There's a lot more. There are a lot more clients <laughs> out there. 
<laughs> there's been a lot more of so excuse the cynic in me but lots more wellness gurus and burnout experts cropping up all over the place we've got some stats from some of the people who've come to the essential network which we'll talk about a little bit more and filled out our online self-assessment tool that helps health professionals get a better picture of where their mental health is and so in terms of that disengagement that we talked about, about 92% of people coming to us experiencing dis- severe disengagement. Um, and then for exhaustion, it's 96.8. Um, so almost everyone's coming with exhaustion. Um, and so just to give context for those scores on the left, the total possible score is three and the average for our sample was 2.93. So <laughs> really getting to the to the top end of the scale there. Mm. Um, and then over on the, on the, on the right was a, Real landmark study. This is the largest cohort study of the mental health of health professionals done in the world in, in 2020 down here in Melbourne. Um, and the findings weren't that much more exciting. So about 70% of that sample of, of over 8,000 health professionals were experiencing severe burnout. Um, but what was really interesting is they measured um, resilience or people's ability to sort of bounce back from stress. And that was way above average as mm. well. So it's not a failure of resilience. Health professionals are extraordinarily resilient, um, but they're still experiencing that exhaustion and that fatigue and that disengagement that comes with unrelenting occupational stress. Absolutely, yeah. That, but that those figures are pretty alarming, even if Mm. even if the first group of figures are from people who have you know seeking help. Regardless, I think that they're very high, aren't they? Absolutely, Yeah. yeah. Um, Kay, um, is this sort of, uh, does this resonate or line up with what you've observed within your own profession? Certainly, and we have the support service and we're getting a lot of calls with people reporting these sorts of symptoms, but also more broadly we're, you know, seeing a lot of people moving from those frontline roles Mm. in pharmacy. They're moving into more administrative roles and other areas because, you know, it's been such a long haul and there isn't, they they have this sense there's no end in sight. There's lack of staff um, as people have, you know, moved on or left the profession and, um, you know, there's definitely that sort of sense that people are, you know, really struggling to keep going. But, I mean, that said, people have stayed on the front line right through the pandemic, you know, in the community pharmacy sector particularly, but in the hospitals as well. Absolutely. So, Hilton, um, I understand that you've had a bit of your own journey with occupational stress and and challenges. Can you share a little bit about what's what the last few years have been like for you? Yeah, I was thinking about burnout um, before I told my story and I was really thinking I wonder if burnout's the right word for me it was more like smolder it was more smoldering than burning like it was sort of like this peat fire the 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 burning that goes underneath the ground and little bits of smoke pop up from time to time um, so maybe it's sort of more smoldering but um, I think one regional rural area for 30 years and uh, gradually um, uh, my patients were getting older and they started dying and I started to worry quite intensely about what was going on for my patients and um, it, it wasn't really for me 
uh, burnout because I, I wasn't exhausted and I wasn't depersonalized. It's like um, it's like I was too enmeshed and too engaged in it, and things just got challenging. And uh, um, I ended up going to see my doctor, and he just said to me, "Hilton, that's it. You're done. You know, you need to you need to stop." working because it's just no good for you and and really for me it was it felt more like it was more like a ptsd like was this accumulation of trauma that um that got to me and when i read the guidelines for ptsd and my other work writing health pathways i sort of like was tick 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 i was ticking all those boxes Mm -hmm. um and uh and so and in a way i felt more comfortable uh saying to people I had to stop work I got PTSD rather than I stopped work because I got burnout now that's just a personal thing for me I'm sure not everyone would feel like that but sounds a bit ridiculous but in a way it was almost like oh PTSD that can oh that's a badge of honor you know that's like I've been at the front line and been in the trenches and I could I could wear that okay um yeah, but anyway, that was that was my experience. That must have been hard. It it was it was hard. Like it was hard and it was good because mm. um it was hard because I felt ashamed, embarrassed, like a failure and that I was letting people down. This was pre-covid, but it wasn't very long after I stopped working that covid hit and I felt a terrible sense of guilt and shame and uh and failure. But on the other hand, I'm alive. That's good. I'm yeah. here telling this story. That's good. And because in my work, I always split my time between clinical work and education, I'm still able to contribute through the education role. Uh, and I've, with support, managed to limit. I haven't, I haven't let my education work take up every hour that I ever had available. I've, um, I realized that my job was to get well and uh, to be well and to stay well. And that's my number one job. I think the other thing that I might just add mm. uh, is having income protection insurance was really helpful mm. and allowed me to work at being well and staying well because I was supported uh, with a partial disability payment through not being able to do clinical work. Um, so I don't know if that's a, uh, something that everyone else considers but for me it was super helpful to be able to do that and I don't know what might have happened if I didn't yeah no thank you for raising that um because I think uh you know money is one of the many reasons that we continue to push on even when we can't any longer um and so uh yeah not having to necessarily worry about that in the same way I think um sounds like it's certainly freed you to make the right decision uh, for you um, in your career. Uh, and so I think that that's really good to highlight. The other thing I wanted to highlight from your story is that you have your own GP. Um, and, you know, as healthcare practitioners, I don't think it's necessarily easy to take that patient role and to seek help. And we can feel embarrassed and uncomfortable and um, we might not necessarily agree with what the healthcare practitioner is telling us. Um, but that, that's brave, and um, it's also what's recommended is for us all to have our own, our own, um, you know, 
practitioners who can care for us just like we care for others. Now, Hilton also has, um, you know, I mentioned that he's quite a voracious writer and he's got a book coming out uh, in October uh, about his experiences throughout his lifetime. Um, And Hilton's going to, um, has kindly agreed to share with us uh, a poem. Maybe we can even close our eyes and listen to Hilton tell, um, reading to us this poem, which is really quite um, amazing. I, I really enjoy it. So, yeah, when you're ready, Hilton. Okay, thanks, Phoebe. Um, uh, just a, a warning, it contains a word that starts with F and ends with U-C-K. So um, that's the, the content warning. Um, apparently that's okay in poetry. So it's called Speed Grieving after Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Samuel Shem. One, PTSD. Me? No way. No fucking way. Two, I'm the doctor, not the patient. I do all that burnout prevention shit. Diet, exercise, meditation. I even got a bloody hobby, for God's sake. And here I am being told I've got PTSD. Haven't I always told my students how to stay sane? like at a cardiac arrest, take your own pulse first. And always remember the patient is the one with the disease. No, this can't be happening to me. Three, it's all their fault. My patients, they don't do what I tell them. The receptionists, they keep fitting in all those extras. Medicare doesn't pay me what I'm worth. The hospitals, they never communicate with me. They're all trying to kill me, bastards. Four, if I try harder, eat better, exercise more, drink less, work more to reduce my waiting list, work less to have more time off, take a holiday, then will my problems magically disappear? If I'm good, can you make this happen? Five, I can't see the bloody point. I've tried everything. Nothing works. I still feel like shit. I still dread going to work. I still worry that my patients will die on me. It's hopeless. Six, my doctor is telling me I need to quit work. My psychologist and my wife are telling me I need to quit. So is my time as a doctor up? Am I done? Have I been cooked? Yesterday, I was a doctor. What am I today? Seven, something's got to change. I can't keep going like this the neck pain, the rashes, the insomnia. My body's telling me something. I've got to start listening. Maybe I can live without being a doctor. It's going to be hard, bloody hard, but surely it will be better than the alternative. It will be better, won't it? Wow. Thank you, Hilton. Uh, Every time I hear it, uh, something new uh, comes out to me, but uh, I really resonate with that bargaining. That if I do this or I do that, then it'll be okay, right? Uh, and um, love um, when you're talking about, oh, if I just sleep more and I do this and I do that and I do a bit of meditation, then I'll be okay, right? And I think, you know, we've been told that for the longest time that if we just take better care of ourselves, then we'll be fine. But as Peter said, that's not the issue. We're a pretty resilient group 
Um, and overall, I think we're pretty good at taking care of ourselves, but we exist in a system that's actually pushing us to the limit almost every day. Um, yeah, Cam, Peter, any um, any any feelings or thoughts listening to Hilton's poem? I think it really resonates with the experience of so many people. I'm seeing lots of comments in the chat where people are saying, it just makes me feel better to know that other people are going through this. And that's really reassuring. And, you know, I think that's why we have a webinar like this where people can be open and honest about how they're feeling. And, you know, that is part of the healing process is actually being able to identify what's going on in each of us and being prepared to consider making changes to what we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I completely agree with you, Phoebe, that every time I hear that something else jumps out. And what I was really sort of thinking about was that idea of, well, you know, I was a doctor yesterday, who or, who, or what am I today? And mm. I'm so guilty of this because I wear so many hats, it's ridiculous. And I know it's unsustainable, but I'm so reluctant to take them off because, you know, there's so much pride that comes with the healthcare profession in terms of what we're achieved and what we can do. Um, I don't want to take any of those hats off. And, and the question is always that, who will I be if I do? And it's such a difficult question for us when we know that we need to slow down. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm probably going to sound like a big hypocrite for the rest of it because I don't want to take my own advice. No, but I really do resonate with that, how difficult it can be. But you're being honest, Peter, and I appreciate that because um, there are lots of contradictions in the ways that we think and feel every day, and I think that that's just the reality. But I think what's really powerful about um, Hilton's story but also seeing him on this side of it is to know that he has stopped seeing patients clinically and he's doing really well. Um, and so that fear of what might happen when you give it up. And he's said that it's hard, but it's also been good. Um, so I think that that's, that's actually a message of real hope for us. Not saying that we should all quit our jobs or anything like that, but just that um, that it's not necessarily the end of the world um, to give up that particular hat if that's what we need to do. So um, on that topic, I guess, of burnout and how we're going and things, um, Peter, can you talk to us a bit about this online program that you've been working on for the last two years? Or no, sorry, more recently, um, the Navigating Burnout Program. Gosh, I wish I'd had two years to put it together. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, it's yeah, look, it's um it's part of the essential network um that you know really is is, is Australia's first sort of mental health hub by and for health professionals. And, you know, we were so focused on, on, on the mental illness side of things that we didn't realise that really in terms of maintaining mental health, the biggest challenge that people were facing was burnout, which was kind of ridiculous because we were all burning out trying to help everybody. So this is what we focused our efforts on, um, was actually creating something like we, we spoke to so many people and asked them what they wanted and trying to put it into this. So they wanted things that were pre completely private and confidential. And so this is, there's no cost of it associated to it. You can have it 24-7. Um, and what healthcare 
professionals are really good is is, is getting stuff done. That's what we do really well. So it's very practical. Um, there's a workbook. We focus on the real issues. So we're not going to tell people to get a bit more sleep, or maybe eat a bit more fruit. Um, it's actually dealing with, well, how do you navigate the systemic issues that are placing that pressure on you? Um, there's a Every t- in every sort of uh, topic, there's the voice of lived experience. So you'll hear other health professionals talk about this. It's not just bossy therapists like me telling you a bunch of strategies. Um, and there's also guidance for leaders because leaders are in a very unique situation to actually be able to change the stuff. So we wanted to make sure that there was stuff in there for leaders as well. Wonderful. All righty. So we're going to be doing a deep dive on some of those specific um, tools and strategies uh, now. Uh, and so let's start off with the first, um, which is that idea that um, imp- the importance of connecting with others um, who we work with or who don't, we don't work with, but who are going to understand um, the unique uh, joys, but also challenges that we experience. Yeah, and, and and the first one sounds almost deceptively simple, but actually the research is really clear that connecting with other people is one of the best things that you can do for burnout and one of the key protective factors is having the social networks that get it in place now. Um, I like to have scheduled catch-ups. So you've got something in the diary. And so it's really clear what the purpose of the catch-up is if you're trekking in on your stress levels. Often when we catch up with friends and colleagues, we don't want to burden them with our problems. We don't want to raise or we don't want to be a downer and raise these problems. So we don't talk about the things that we desperately need to talk about. Putting that clearly on the agenda can be really helpful. Um, But if you're stressed, check-in groups can be really good, but make sure you're balancing complaining with problem solving. Um, You know, everyone loves a debrief and a whinge and it feels really good, but you don't want to leave it there. You want to get to the problem-solving bit. We all know the collective wisdom we've got in health, the health profession. Ask your colleagues to help you solve the problems as well. Um, and peer support. You know, like you were saying, there's really unique ups and downs in the health profession, and sometimes it's it just it just takes a health professional to understand. I got to catch up with my cousins recently, and they're all health professions, and we all just sat around and we just got it. We all mm-hmm. understood. So peer support through either hand in hand, which is a fantastic service. It's all run by volunteers, uh, and you can get linked in with people from your discipline or other disciplines, or maybe even it's time to ask that question: Is it time to set this up for ourselves? in our discipline, in our organisation. And then leaders, encourage and support opportunities to just debrief. You don't have to solve everyone's problems and you don't have to suddenly become a mental health professional. But if you can try and help people debrief and just make sense of what they're going through, um, it can really go a long way. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. also just want to stress the power of listening, that just by listening to someone, they will actually feel a lot better having shared their story. And so, you know, the concept of peer support is very simple. You don't actually have to do much. It's mostly listening and then being able to tell your story and being listened to by the other person. And that's, you know, the hand-in-hand model. Mm. It's very much about just supporting each other and listening. And we use that too in the pharmacist support service. A lot of the work we do is listening. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Kay. And, you know, there's a question in the chat box about, well, what if I don't have a social network or what if there is nobody around me that I feel comfortable with? And I think, you know, that's the sort of situation where 
linking in with a support group through hand-in-hand might be really handy because that's what they're there for, you know, and and the facilitators are trained to be able to do that in a way that feels safe and constructive for you. Now, we know that most health practitioners are conscientious, we're people pleasers, we might even be perfectionistic in our personality traits, Um, and that makes us really good health professionals, but often it's not very good for ourselves. Um, It's a bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, And so setting and holding limits is a big part, um, I think, of maintaining our own well-being uh, in our work. Um, Peter, can you give us some tips about how to actually do that? Because I think it's easier (laughs) said than done. There's a, yeah, well, this is where the hypocrisy starts sitting here, you know, at 8 30 night on a webinar, I guess, for us, the great cause that I'm having fun. <laughs> it's not always the case. But I mean, it's so hard to do right when it doesn't come naturally to any of us. Um, and also in our culture, are we even allowed to admit that we've got limits, you know, in healthcare culture, but even in the organizational culture where you work, sometimes it's just not okay. You're not a team player or you don't really have what it takes if you need to set limits. Um, but you've got them, whether you want to acknowledge them or not, none of us are, you know, we're not healthcare robots, you know, you can't just sort of recharge us and off we go again in the morning. We have to set limits and it's so important, not just for ourselves, but the people we care for, for us to be fit for work. And setting limits, I think, is just, you know, it, it, it's really just good clinical practice, but it's one that we're not always allowed to do. We're not even given permission to do it. So here are three steps that I think can, can, can help if you don't even know how to do it. The first one is get clear about what your limits are because often we don't even think about what we need or we think about what everyone else needs, but what do we need? So, so what are the limits? What's okay and what's not okay? And the next one is talking to people about why your limits are important for absolutely everyone. So it'll be obvious why they're important to you, but talk about why they're important to your family and also why they're important to your organisation. You know, will you actually be a better clinician, a safer clinician? Will you be able to do more work next month if you have time off this month? All of those sorts of things. And then the last one is that is, is how do we hold limits? And this is what we're all pretty terrible at, um, is actually drawing the line and then holding it because often most of us walk out of these meetings having said, having set no limits whatsoever and, and also having said yes to a bunch of other things that we didn't intend to say yes to. So try and compromise on how the limits are set but not what the limits are. So you might be willing to compromise on where or when or, you know, you might be willing to work full time for the next month while they get someone in a different role or you might be willing to work the next three weekends but after that you need to have a month off compromise on how it's done but not what because if you don't if you compromise on what the limits are once you know that what's important to you you're going to be in the same position and leaders um please model this for for your staff show your staff that it's okay there you know you are the flight attendants all the passengers are looking towards to see everything's okay or if the plane's going down it's okay to say no and particularly with early career health professionals if you're in that privileged supervisory role model it for them publicly show them how to say no um i think if we've got a a health profession with a bunch of, you know, new recruits who know how to say no, our culture will really start to change. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the power of, of of somebody in leadership to model that and to give permission 
um, to to start saying no to some things. I think you can't underestimate that, and that sets those people up for to be able to do that for the rest of their careers and not burn out after five years. Yeah. Um, Kane Hilton, did you have anything, um, any further insights on this this topic? I just wanted to really add that, you know, setting limits includes putting boundaries around having lunchtime or the mm. break to go to the toilet during the day because it's very easy as healthcare professionals to just keep going, going, going. Yeah. As much as we like to think that we're superhuman, we're actually not. I made it a rule, and, and it was pretty much one of those things, Peter, where it was a limit that I wasn't prepared to compromise on. I always left the building for lunch, always. Mm. And mm. if I finished my morning list at 5 to 2 and my afternoon list was starting at 2 o'clock, I still left the building. And that was just to get out, have something to eat, and, um, and clear the head again. Reset and refresh. And another thing that um, that I was told by one of my bosses a long time ago was that every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. And so really, really taking stock of that opportunity cost, um, particularly um, to ourselves and to our families, I think. Can I just jump in on that one, Phoebe? Of course, I can't, yeah. I can't resist. So it's that thing, yeah, if you say yes to one thing, it's like, oh, I've got to say no to something else. You know, mm-hmm. I've got my sad face on. I've got to say no to something else. So um, I know psychologists love to reframe things. So mm-hmm. I've reframed it um, by turning it around and saying, um, if I say no to something, then I get to say yes to something else. And now I've got my bright, happy, smiling face on because I get to say yes to something perhaps that I really, really want to do. So it's a it's the same equation. It's just turned the other way around. It's got a smiley. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I love that. Thanks, Hilton. All righty. Um, but building on from that idea about our personality types and that we love pleasing others um, often at a personal cost, we can have really unrealistic expectations of ourselves and sometimes of others as well. Um, And I think it's important to take stock of that. Peter, what are some um, tips that you have for us about um, those expectations that we have? Yeah, gosh, the, the expectations can become tyrannical, I think for all humans, but certainly in healthcare, um, and 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 we get them from from all areas in healthcare. We tend to hold ourselves to very very high standards. Our colleagues tend to expect the world from us, and we expect the world from them. But also, society tends to expect us to be really, a, you know, bright lights in dark places. It's not just sort of you know simple problem solving. It's really important stuff. And the reason why it becomes so difficult is because you know we're just victims of our our evolution, we evolved this thing in our heads that that its whole goal the whole time is trying to predict what's going to happen next and create expectations that we that we follow through with. It's very efficient, but it also means that we just labour under the pressure of expectations. So here are three sort of quick tips, um, and I didn't mention before, but I should now, there's lots more detail on all of these topics in the Navigating Burnout program. I see lots of questions coming through about more detail, so you'll find it there. 
The first one, and, and excuse my terrible humour, but is stop masturbating. So Albert Ellis sort of 50 years ago coined this term, which I think is hilarious, but it's really this idea of being really wedded to musts, that expectancy sort of tendon, that expectancy creating brain loves a good must. Um, but of course, nothing is really a must, but it's a good way to sort of short circuit that thinking. So ask yourself, are you masturbating in front of colleagues, in front of patients, you know, in the car trip home? Um, it can be a good way to snap out of it a little bit. And then you can ask yourself, have a conversation with your mind. Your mind's full of musts. You might want to gently explain to your mind what's possible, must versus can. I know you think I must do this, but here's what I can do. Um, clarifying expectations explicitly can be really good for everyone concerned. Um, just be really clear about what expectations are and even ask people, particularly patients, I find, you know, now that you've heard all about that, you know, what, do you, what are some of your expectations or what are you really hoping to get out of this? Or, or what's that future goal that you're really, really cherishing at the moment? Let's make sure it's realistic because as Anne Lamott reminds us, expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. So clarifying expectations, but also with your team can be really, really useful. And also we tend to shy away from being clear sometimes as health professionals because we're often dealing with really upsetting things. We want to add soft edges to those very sharp corners. But being clear is kind. Um, I always talk about what I'd love to do and then I talk about what I can do with people, with, my, with, with patients, with students, with um, team members, all of those sorts of things. And leaders, you can, model, you can model this. You can model clarifying expectations for your team. So I always ask because I have a team that is full of, you know, overachieving perfectionists who always have a million things on their to-do list. Ask, well, what are your expectations here? And is fulfilling the expectations going to come at anyone's at the cost of anyone's health? And often it will. And normalised calling out myths in healthcare we're not superheroes, we're not robots, we're not perfect. Um, we'd love to be, but we're just not. And also it's okay to sort of to say that, to acknowledge our humanity um, can be really powerful. Yeah. All righty. Um, and I know that lots of people um, have sort of two and a half years into the pandemic have sort of feeling pretty exhausted, feeling pretty burnt out and just in autopilot um, and have potentially lost um, sight or, or, that, or that enthusiasm that they might have had in the past for what it is that they do. Peter, what's your advice around navigating that difficult space? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it, it, it's become so difficult in the past two years, I think a lot of us have forgotten why we actually got into healthcare or have sat at one in the morning screaming into the void, why did we get into healthcare? Um, and, but why are we here? It's actually a really important question to ask ourselves because it's why we get up and go to work in the morning. Um, so I think there are a few things to really bear in mind. It's, it's not who are you here for? It's why are you here? And it's also not a list of other people's priorities. It's a list of yours. It's about thinking about what's important to you. Because at the end of the day, we take our values to work and we try and live them. And that's where we find ourselves in this moral injury space. When the system that's set up isn't set up to help us live our values or really practice what we preach, we've all been in a situation where we've had to do something that really grates against our values or the sort of person we are. 
and it feels horrible. It really, really does. So thinking about what's important to you, not your boss, not your colleagues, not your patients, not your kids, not your partner, not your parents, what's important to you. And then the next bit is the bit where the rubber really has to hit the road. It's living our values. Um, and it's really important to plan it, thinking about just, okay, well, personally, my values are, are kindness, courage, and authenticity. And those are really useful things to come to in really difficult times for me. Even if I just ask myself the question, what's the kindest way I can do this? Then it's just a guiding light in those really, really tough times. And leaders talk to people about what drives them. Often we talk about what drives our numbers and our metrics and our bottom line, but what drives our people mm. um, and incorporate that into job design and learning plans. If someone really has a really strong value, like kindness or courage, um, or how can you design their job so they get to do more of that? You really, I mean, you really will get the best out of people if they're doing something that's really meaningful to them. Mm. And that's the quadruple aim, isn't it? Is to actually build in um, the the wealth, the welfare of um, of the workers um, into the systems that that we're that we're building. And um, mm-hmm. I'm really hopeful that that's going to transform healthcare in the next decade. Alrighty. So we've been talking a lot about this essential network. Um, Peter, can you just explain a little bit more about the service? Yeah, absolutely. So just a super quick um, overview. So this was this was built during the pandemic, but you know, we're really hoping to see it continue. It's an online mental health hub for all Australian health professionals. Um, people can access five free sessions with either a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist. We've delivered hundreds and hundreds of those. You can access free access to clinically validated mental health programs if you prefer to do it in private or do it by yourself to begin with. Um, the link to Hand in Hand is on that page. They're a partner of the 10 program as well. So you can link in with peer support. There's lots of self-help resources. Um, and also that burnout management program is on there. And I think the first place to I usually recommend people to start is our online self-assessment tool. Mm go through and complete some questionnaires and get a personalised report of where you're at and then think about what those next steps are and each of the next steps that are recommended on the report, you can get them all through 10. Wonderful. Thanks. Um, So we've talked a little bit about the burnout resource and 10, but I just want to um, draw everybody's attention to some other services as well. Um, So we have uh, nurse and midwife support, which is a 24-hour telephone service, but also a website uh, for nurses, midwives and nursing and midwifery students, but also family members um, uh, who, uh, and friends uh, of nurses and midwives. So really anybody who's um, uh, concerned in any way uh, and they provide confidential advice and referral and try and promote better health for our nurses and midwives. So um, that's that one. Um, there's a very similar resource uh, for doctors uh, and um, those are state and territory-based uh, doctors' health advisory service and they provide uh, a confidential telephone service as well as quite a number of online resources. Uh, Kay is actually um, from the Pharmacist Support Service. So did you want to tell us a bit about that, Kay? Basically, it's a a phone line that pharmacists can ring and that includes pharmacy students and pharmacy interns where they can speak to a colleague who will understand the situation that they're in. So it's peer support over the phone, specifically targeting the pharmacy profession. And it's available every day of the year from eight in the morning till 11 at night on the East Coast. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, And um, 
we've been talking a lot about hand-in-hand peer support. You can uh, sign up either for group sessions um, that are facilitated by a trained facilitator, volunteer, or a one one-on-one sessions. Uh, so that's not a clinical service, but it's for um, uh, peer support. Uh, and for many of us, I think that this is um, a really important um, thing to plug into, whether it's through hand in hand or through um, our own networks. Doctors for Doctors is a collaboration with all of the Doctors Health Advisory Services and provide lots of really fantastic resources, including um, a, a set of online modules about um, seeking help as a doctor or providing uh, medical services to healthcare practitioners. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast on promoting health practitioner wellbeing. A big thank you to Peter, Kay and Hilton for sharing your expertise and experience with us. All the resources and services that we discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website under the eMental Health page under webinar 55. Thank you so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.